Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. If you need to stretch a little bit, uh, that's okay. We're going to prepare for God's word. Let me set it up for you. Um, But you can begin to sort of feel your feet under you. Uh, firmly planted on the ground as we prepare for this. Uh, We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 1. As some of you know, if you've been here, we've been looking through different characters in the Advent narratives and and, and investigating what it is that they desire. Uh, We've already talked about Zechariah, who desires certainty. Uh, Elizabeth, who desires to be free from shame. Mary, who desired to do God's will. And then today we're going to look at Joseph and his desires. Um, Why are we talking about desire? Uh, Well, in some ways, desire is right in front of our faces. Um, I did have someone in the first service go, I don't like Christmas presents up front here. It sends the wrong message at church. Well, this is part of the the aesthetic to to remind us that desire is in front of us in this Christmas season. What do you want? What do you deeply desire? But we're also simplifying a really complex philosophical idea called mimetic desire. The idea behind this is that we learn desire from other people and other models. In other words, our desires are learned rather than inherent, usually. As Rene Girard puts it, imitation is the force that shapes our human desire. So, as we prepare to hear God's word, let me ask the question, what do you desire and where are you learning your desires from? Rather than learning it from the blue box or bag, from the awesome car commercial, What we're going to do is we're going to turn to scripture and we're going to see the desires of these characters and let their desires shape our desires. And we're not doing anything new here, by the way. There's a a huge Christian tradition and thought on on desires that basically says our hearts, our souls are, are this mixed bag of complex and contradictory desires and that we have to navigate those desires through life like a labyrinth. But it's good for us to take a look at these desires, to learn desires from other people because there's something deep within us a river deep within us that wants an outlet for that desire. And we want that outlet to be one that is God-honoring. So, what is Joseph's desire from Matthew chapter 1? Hear God's word. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to divorce her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel. Which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had given birth to a son. And he named him Jesus. The word of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. 
You can be seated. So one of the things that I love to do is I love to study art. Some of you know that about me. Um, when I look at nativity depictions in art, there's a pretty common theme for Joseph. You can probably locate him there. He's on the top left. Um, he's almost always positioned behind Mary. And here he's like behind and lower than her. Uh, kind of an interesting place for him to be. In some depictions, he's, he's literally um, in the shadows, lurking uh, in the background of that nativity scene. And this is, this is pretty consistent in terms of what I've learned about Joseph, um, that he is unassuming, he is honorable, he is humble. Um, I've heard numerous sermons and teachings on Joseph, both in this church and in other churches, um, and, and pretty much every single devotion or sermon that I've heard on Joseph boils down to the, the same basic message, which is, what a good guy, what a good guy, right? If you could basically heard that about Joseph... What a good guy. There he is in the shadows. What a good guy. Um, so naturally, if you know me, my, my nature is to push back uh, against simple readings of, of our texts. And so I began to, to really study Joseph um, to try and sort of poke holes in this assessment of Joseph as, as a good guy. So I looked at the, the five brief narratives that we have of Joseph. We really only have five narratives in, in Scripture, and they're, and they're all brief. Um, the one I just read, uh, the circumcision of Jesus. Uh, the flight to Egypt, the return from Egypt to Nazareth, and then Jesus as a 12-year-old boy uh, teaching in the temple. That's, that's what we have, basically, of Joseph in Scripture. Five narratives he's never quoted. We never hear the voice of Joseph in Scripture. That's what we have to go off of. Um, I did some intense study, and let me tell you, um, every sermon's right. What a good guy. What a good guy Joseph is. Uh, no big surprises here. What a sterling example of faithfulness and obedience and goodness. What a good guy. And if we're talking about desire, if we're looking at Joseph, Joseph, what's his desire? He desires to do what's right. Joseph desires to do what's right. And essentially, at every turn, Joseph does the right thing. It's amazing. Every turn in his story, he seems to make the right decision, do the right thing. But there's something beyond him just being a good guy. And I do want to get to that deeper Layer. But first, I want to I give you a, full, a fuller view of, of Joseph. I want to point out four things in this text that you might not have uh, understood or observed or you didn't know about um, that, that sort of give us the fullness of his desire to do the right thing. And then we're going to go to sort of the deeper levels that are there. So four things in this text that you might not know. Uh, the first of all is you might not know about the betrothal process in Judaism in the first century. It says that Mary was engaged or betrothed to Joseph. But then strangely, in the exact same sentence, it says, uh, Matthew calls Joseph her husband. Did you pick up on that? We don't use that language, right? If you're engaged, this would be her fiancé, not her husband. So what's going on here? That's confusing to us. It actually uh, makes a ton of sense back then. Let me walk you through this. Um, as has been common for the majority of humans throughout human history, Mary and Joseph's marriage was an arranged marriage by their parents. Um, Mary and Joseph would have known from the time that they were little kids that they were going to marry one another. And Nazareth at the time was a small town, probably only five or 600 people in Nazareth. So they definitely ran into each other, knew each other, their families knew each other. Uh, when they were engaged or betrothed, Joseph, despite how art depicts him, was probably 19 or 20 years old um, uh, at the time, and Mary would have been 12 or 13. That was just sort of the common practice at the time. So there would have been a ceremony at that time 
where they would have been officially engaged and betrothed. It was a sacred ceremony that they would have done. And by rights of that betrothal, they would have actually been considered husband and wife, but not living together, not sleeping together, not uh, in marriage together until that's consummated at the wedding, which would happen 18 to 24 months after the betrothal. What would be happening during that year and a half, two years of waiting? Well, uh, the reason that that's there is because Mary and her family have to get ready for the wedding. Um, it takes a long time to get ready for a festival like that that lasts for uh, at least a week, maybe longer. Uh, her, she and her family would have prepared every single element of that wedding from the clothes that the guests would have worn, uh, which were a specific sort of wedding garb. Um, they would have grown their own food or, or found a way to trade to get food uh, so they could feed the people. They would have built tents for people who were coming out of town. It was a big ordeal. It took a couple years to get there. Uh, Joseph, what was he doing, doing during that year and a half, two years? Well, he was developing his skills so that he could provide for his wife and new family. Um, it says, scripture tells us that Joseph was a carpenter. Um, I hate to break to you, he wasn't really a carpenter in, in the true sense that we think about a carpenter. Here's why. Um, Jesus wasn't either. Uh, it's because trees are really scarce in that area, but you know what? Uh, there's a ton of in Galilee. There's rocks. Uh, so Joseph and Jesus uh, were, were really more masons or stonemen, um, stonesmen than they were carpenters. That's what, that would have been their medium that they would have built stuff with. So that's the first thing, understanding that betrothal process. Second, um, when Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant uh, before the wedding, and he knows that he's not the father because they haven't been together, the text says that Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to divorce Mary quietly. Uh, Joseph had two options under the Jewish law, and we know that he was following the Jewish law because it says that he was a righteous man. What that means when he says righteous man is that he's a, he's a law follower. He's a Jewish law follower. Um, as a righteous man, he had two options. The first one was a public trial. That's the one that almost everybody would have gone through if someone committed adultery in the midst of that relationship. And basically what it was is you would bring public charges against the person who's done you wrong. And you would do a public trial on the streets for everybody to see. And the whole idea of that is you wanted to publicly absolve yourself of any shame or guilt. And you wanted to heap all that shame and guilt upon the person who had done you wrong. And it was a very public ordeal, often ended, especially for women who committed adultery with them, being dragged out in the street and stoned to death. Brutal. Awful. The second option was for Joseph to leave the marriage quietly, not publicly, privately. The downside of that is it's a knock on your own honor. It's a, it brings shame upon you, but it saves the other person from shame and honor and violence. And Joseph resigns himself to the latter. What a good guy, right? Certainly something that he didn't need to do. Most people would have gone um, with the more public route. Third thing I want you to know about this passage is when he's visited by an angel, Joseph is addressed as son of David. This is really important, super significant. Jesus is the only other person in the New Testament who is called son of David as a title. Why is that? Well, it's because Matthew, which he's already done in his gospel right before this passage, is he has offered us a meticulous genealogy of, of Jesus, which starts with the patriarch Abraham, goes to King David, goes another uh, set of generations to the exile in Babylon, and then another set of generations to who? Joseph. Joseph. He is making the case that Joseph comes from the line of David, and maybe even 
the angel is reminding Joseph, hey, you come from the line of David. What does that mean? It's really important because there cannot be a king in Israel who doesn't come from the line of David. What Matthew is doing is he's laying the groundwork for Jesus to be the Messiah, the savior of the people Israel through who? Through Joseph. Through Joseph. Fourth thing I want you to know about this passage. After obeying the word of the messenger and taking Mary as his wife, he honors her by not sleeping with her until after the birth. And the text says that Joseph named the boy Jesus. Again, very, very important detail because the naming of a child in, in first century Judaism was the responsibility of the father, always the responsibility of the father. And this is a very important note here because the naming of the child also was a legal responsibility that you were saying, I'm taking ownership of this child. I'm caring for this child. So by naming the child, Jesus is officially, or Joseph is officially becoming Jesus' earthly father. He's becoming an adoptive father. And I think the most notable adoptive father in all of scripture. So we put all these things together and we go, we see the character of someone who's trying to do the right thing. What a good guy. He does right by Mary. He gives Jesus this royal uh, lineage. He adopts Jesus as his son when he didn't have to. But what's the deeper thing that's happening here in this man who's trying to do the right thing? It's something that makes me even more enamored with Joseph. Last week, um, Joy shared about Mary, and Mary's desire was to do the will of God. Um, in many ways, Joseph is a corollary to that. He's a person who desires to do right by God and others, to be in the center of God's will for him. And he is super honorable in the way that he does this. In his mind, there was a right way to do things by the Jewish law. He, he tried to follow that. He had grown up with that. He'd studied that. He tried to follow that. Um, divorce her quietly. Get out of this mess. Try and honor her along the way. But that decision to do the right thing by the law actually leads to the angel visitation where he's invited to do another right thing that's even harder, which is stay with Mary. Take her as your wife. Take this child in as your own. And Joseph does that really hard thing, and it leads to a remarkable life and an incredible witness in Scripture of just goodness. So here's where I want to land this morning for, for you and I from the story of Joseph. When we have a desire to do the right thing by God and other people, God will inevitably invite us to do hard things. He will inevitably invite us to do hard things. Even the most trained pastors and theologians uh, slip into believing that if we, if we follow God, if we do the right things, if we seek to live this sort of moral, upright life and make honorable choices— then our lives are going to go pretty linear and, and, and things are going to go well for us. In a way, trying to do the right thing and, and, and to be a good person can become a way for us to sort of maintain the status quo and not rock, rock the boat too much. But here's the reality. Comfort and a linear path are not promised to us. In fact, Jesus promises us the exact opposite. He promises us that this life is going to have trials and troubles, that we're going to have crosses that we need to bear, that we're going to have to do hard things. The biblical writer James has his own way of saying it when he says, take joy whenever you face trials of any kind because you know that that perseverance is ultimately going to lead to maturity. In other words, James is saying, 
embrace hard things when they come in your life because you cannot avoid them anyways, and they will mature you. They're going to mature you. You see, maturity is not the result of reading all the right books or or listening to lots of podcasts or mastering a a repertoire of self-help techniques. Maturity is a result of what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. It is a cumulative effect of a lifetime of prayer and surrender and obedience to God as we persevere through various trials, through hard things. It was not Joseph's understanding and following of the law that made him such a good guy, a remarkable man. It was his ability to do the hard things with obedience and conviction and foresight and maybe even joy. Friends, Joseph teaches us the value of doing hard things in our life and embracing that invitation that God has to do hard things. It's okay for us to admit that we are hardwired to, to try and do the right things, but we're also hardwired to not want to do the hard things. It's okay if you're like, I don't like doing hard things. None of us like doing that. If you do, I, I'm not sure what's wrong with you. Um, hard things are hard things for a reason. And I confess that I am certainly one of those, those people uh, who is hardwired to not want to run into hard things. Every time I take one of those personality tests or strength tests, it tells me that I am by nature a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. I like peace. And hard things in life threaten that peace for me, my inner peace and the peace that I have between other people. And I'll be frank, I'm not just concerned about me, I'm concerned about every single one of us because we live in a time in human history where in comparison to pretty much any other generation that's walked this earth, we really don't have to do hard things all that often on a daily basis. We can avoid hard things in a way that people throughout human history have not been able to to do. We can find ways around so many of the hard things in our lives. If it's a relational strife, we can just cancel or unfriend or disassociate with that person. If it's a job that offers us difficulty, we can just find another one. We have the mobility to do that. If our marriage gets hard, we can just choose to vacate emotionally or physically. If we feel discomfort, we can just say, I I don't feel safe. I don't feel good about this, rather than push through the hard thing in front of us. But here's the reality. We avoid difficult things to our own detriment. So let me ask this question. What hard, difficult thing do you have in front of you right now? What hard thing are you facing? Is it a conversation that you know you need to have with someone that's awkward or difficult or you know it's not going to go well? Is it a moral or ethical stand that you know you need to take that might cost you a relationship? Is it a mediation that needs to happen between you and and somebody else? Is it an addiction that needs to finally be addressed and kicked? Is it a a long-standing pain that you finally need to bring to the surface and deal with? Is it a relationship that's been severed that needs to be repaired? you need to ask forgiveness of somebody? Is it a conviction that you know you need to hold? Is it something that you need to quit or something that you need to start? All of these things are hard things. When Joseph was told, take Mary as your wife, take this child as your own, that was a hard thing that Joseph had to do. 
There was a social cost to that. There was an emotional cost to that. It changed the entire course of his life. But he did the hard thing. And most importantly, it seems to me that he did the hard thing with an expectation that God was going to show up in the midst of that difficult thing in a way that God would never show up if things were comfortable and, and easy. If he had chosen the easy way, the way of less resistance, he would not have encountered God in the same way. Can you and I say the same? Can we say the same in our lives? Angela Duckworth, in her wonderful book called Grit, she makes the case that grit, which she defines as the ability to push through hard things, that it's different than other character traits that are similar to it, like, like self-control and conscientiousness, because grit requires a long view and a willingness to forego immediate results for long-term rewards. She posits that grit is one of the key characteristics that we need to navigate our world today and all its complexity, especially for the younger generations that are here, and I'm so glad there are so many of you here today. Grit is a crucial ability that you need to hone and develop in your lives. In many ways, grit helps us understand what Joy's been talking about for a couple weeks of thin and thick desires, which we've been talking about. Thin desires um, are, are, are those things that are um, sort of temporal and, and pretty fleeting and, and sort of on the surface, like the perfect gift for somebody or, or a better appearance or a remodeled kitchen or an A on a test. None of those things are bad, by the way, but they are not deep. Those are not deep desires. Thick desires run deeper, like I deeply desire to be a better person, to create rhythms that are going to lead to increased health in my life, to draw closer to the heart of God, to be free from what has been binding me, to leave a legacy for others, to encourage other people by my presence, to be mature. Those are thick desires, and they take a lot of grit. They take a lot of us taking the long view and persevering. Uh, an example of this from the life of C.S. Lewis, I love this example. Um, Lewis went to war uh, with his best friend, Patty Moore, and Patty uh, died in the war. Um, and before the war, they, they had said, if anything happens to us, let's take a vow to, to, uh, to care for each other's families um, if one of us dies. And so uh, C.S. Lewis uh, took care of, of Patty's mom, Mrs. Moore, and, and, uh, and Patty's sister as well. His, uh, C.S. Lewis and his brother Warren uh, moved in with them uh, near Oxford. Uh, Jane Moore became what he described as his adoptive mother. C.S. Lewis's mom died when he was nine years old of, of cancer. He loved Jane Moore uh, dearly, uh, even as she began to decline into what he called pathological illnesses, what we would probably call mental illness today, um, which, event which eventually led to severe dementia. Um, this meant that during virtually all of C.S. Lewis's productive years, all the books that we have, everything that we have from his life comes from these years, he was constantly interrupted by the demands of his adoptive mother, constantly. There were things she just couldn't do, so he had to do all the shopping and all the cleaning and all the housework. Um, Lewis's brother, Warren, uh, who also lived in the household and was someone who did not like to be interrupted and was not receptive to that, um, he bemoaned the fact that C.S. Lewis was doing this in his diaries, and he suggested that C.S. Lewis could have been a much more prolific author if he had not been forced to spend countless hours on menial domestic tasks. But C.S. Lewis himself gives a different assessment of this. Uh, he was not resentful 
about the hard things that he had to do. He was grateful for them. And he suggested that it was precisely these domestic demands that kept him in touch uh, with life in a way that other Oxford scholars, like his brother, who was an Oxford scholar of French literature, um, they just weren't connected in the same way he was. It was precisely because of his willingness to do those hard things on a daily basis that C.S. Lewis was able to have such empathic insights into the everyday human condition. And I love this because I, I think we need to look for the hand of God in the difficult things of life for us too. Through them, God guides us and tutors us and matures us. So if we are totally in control of our agendas and how our life's going to go, if we could simply plan and execute our lives according to our own dreams and no unwanted demands upon us, I am totally confident that each and every one of us would become really selfish people. C.S. Lewis once said that he expected to spend most of eternity thanking God for all the prayers that he didn't answer. And I suspect that he would probably agree that we'll also spend a good part of eternity thanking God for all the hard things that we, that we did, that he invited us into, that derailed our plans, but matured us and shaped us into the people that he wanted us to be. I will also note that C.S. Lewis, to Mrs. Moore's very dying day, after she went into a nursing home, he visited her every single day. When I look at the story of Joseph, I see over and over again a man who is willing to do the hard thing and does so because he expects to meet God in the midst of it and be formed by him. That's why he's willing to take Mary as his wife instead of quietly divorcing her, let alone publicly disgracing her by a divorce trial. That's why he's able to, to take this baby in his arms and name Jesus and assume this child as his own despite the weight of that responsibility. That's why he's willing to flee to Egypt. That's why he's willing to return to Nazareth on the guidance of an angel. Basically, everything we know about G Joseph is that it is one hard thing after another in his life. And what was he? He was faithful with integrity and honor and humility. And like Lewis said, I, I think Joseph, because of his faithfulness in meeting God in the hard things, uh, in, in, in things that often took years and years of, of uncertainty, I think he had a front row seat into what it means to live into the thick desires that we have in our lives. He learned perseverance and empathy and the deep truth that God shows up in the hard things in ways that he cannot show up when things are comfortable and linear and easy. Maybe it's not a problem that Joseph is always sort of lurking in the background of the nativity scenes that we have in, in art. I actually think that Joseph probably would have had no problem skipping the foreground of most things in his life. I think he would have readily shunned the spotlight, taken the longer view, embraced the thicker desires, knowing that his honor and his renown was with God, not in people, especially through the hard things of life. By the time Jesus begins his formal ministry, he's in his late 20s, and Joseph is absent from the story. Mary and Jesus' siblings play a role, but no Joseph is mentioned, and that's led most scholars to believe that Joseph died sometime between when Jesus was 12 years old, teaching in the temple, and when his formal ministry began when he was 28 or 29 years old. Jesus is noted as a carpenter those years in Nazareth. Certainly learned that from his father, Joseph. Actually, he was a stonemason or, or, or a stone worker. 
So it stands to reason that Joseph remained a formative presence in his life, both in the workshop and elsewhere. I'm thankful that Joseph didn't have to watch Jesus' journey to the cross in the way that Mary did and had to endure. But from what I understand of Joseph and his character, I'm confident that he was truly a great earthly father for Jesus. And I'd like to think that Jesus, in humanity, learned a great deal about grit from Joseph, about doing hard things in life. That even as they were working on that stone together, which is hard work, by the way, that he was learning grit. He was learning perseverance. He was learning to do hard things. Because it was through Joseph's willingness to do hard things, his grit, that Jesus was brought into the world. And it's through Jesus' willingness to do hard things that salvation came to the world. I think in some measure, Jesus learned the thick desires of finding God in the hard things from Joseph. And that, by the way, is one of the best examples of mimetic desire that we have. And I pray that we might do the same. So friends, from the youngest to the oldest here today, let me ask again, what is the hard thing that you are facing? What difficult thing have you perhaps been avoiding? Trying to get around. Can you change your thinking on that? Can you begin to see that difficult place as the very place where God wants you to be? Can you, can you allow this interruption in your carefully laid plans, your expectations, to be a place where God matures you and blesses you and honors you and changes you? I look back on my life and I am so very grateful for the hardest things in my life. Because that's where I met God. That's where he formed me where he blessed me. And I pray the same might be for you, that you might have the grit to deal with the hard things in life, to journey through them, not try and get around them, just like Joseph did. And I trust that as you do so, just as Lee, G Joseph was led to the very place where Jesus was, that you will be led to the very heart of Jesus, which after all is what this Advent season is all about. May it be so for you. Amen. I want to...